What's going on, y'all? My name is Jordan. I am one of the pastors here, and um, uh, Happy New Year to everyone who I haven't seen yet. Uh, we're in this series uh, called First, God Over Everything. One of the things we've been hoping to do in this series is to build a framework for us to enter into 2019 with that would allow us to live that out. Here's the good news and the bad news. The good news is it's possible. The bad news is there's a lot of things that will get in the way of that actually happening. Uh, for one, there's a lot of distractions. I don't know about you, but for me, I can get really hype and motivated about things, and then six days later, uh, I've forgotten all about it. But even bigger than distractions is that there are rivals that are fighting for your attention. There are rivals that are fighting for your devotion. There are rivals that are fighting for your dependence. Now, rivalry is a really interesting thing. Uh, I grew up in Westchester in, uh, in New Rochelle. Shout out to everybody from the 914. And um, we had one huge rival, Mount Vernon. Let me define rival. A rival is a person or a thing competing with another for the same objective or for superiority in the same field of activity. Now, our rival was Mount Vernon, and uh, in basketball games, for example, uh, every game that we would have versus another team, you know, the, the, the crowd would be half full. But when we were playing Mount Vernon, 20 minutes before the game even tipped off, the gym was packed. It would get so crowded in there that you couldn't even, like, take the ball out of bounds because there were just people standing all around the court. And here's the thing about rivalries. The deeper the rivalry, you'll never find anyone who is neutral. I went to law school in North Carolina, and uh, I didn't understand how rabid Duke versus North Carolina was until I got down there. I don't know who she's rooting for, but it's definitely one of the two. <laughs> when I got down there on the game days during rivalry week, uh, you would see everybody with paraphernalia, t-shirts, uh, flags flying outside of their car. You knew very clearly which side they were on. For rivalries, no one is neutral. I've never met a Yankees and a Red Sox fan. They're those who root for the team with the most championships in the history of the world, of the major leagues, and then there are people who cheer for the Red Sox. <laughs> in a rivalry, no one is neutral. Eventually, the deeper your love is for one of the teams, the more you end up actually hating the other team. Here's what's so peculiar and, and challenging about this. When I talk about us having rivals for our heart, as we're going to see today in the scripture, this rival doesn't just want equality with God. It doesn't just want you to love both of them. It actually will cause you to love and to depend on it to the point that Jesus will say, you and I hate God. It's a scripture that comes from Matthew 6, and I got to admit, uh, it, is, uh, it packs a punch. And today we are talking about the one rival that stands in between our love, our dependence, and our f fidelity and trust in God, it's money. Now, before we get too deep into today, I got to acknowledge a couple things. The first thing is probably the most important thing. If you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. Uh, God is not after your money. God doesn't want to take your money. Having money in and of itself is not a bad thing. Uh, the problem that Jesus is trying to address is not that you would have money, but that money would have you. So when we talk about money today, we're talking about it in that sense. And I also want to acknowledge another handicap of mine, which is to be a pastor in a church talking about money. 
Now, if you've been to church for a little while or if you've uh, been around church, I'm sure you would have heard of some scenario in which a church really misused and uh, misabused uh, the money that people were giving to the church. Um, I heard a couple weeks ago there's a pastor who, like, who bought a Lamborghini for his wife with like, the church's money. And at first, I was like super prideful, like, yeah, I would never do that. You know, I would have just bought a BMW. It's more practical. <laughs> you can't have a Lambo in the city, dog. Like, the paint job alone is 20, 20 grand. Uh, no, but in all seriousness, um, we do have accountability measures in, in how things are used. And um, we would never use people's money for private purposes in any way. Uh, I actually got ordained at a church that's no longer in existence. And the reason that took it down was I, I saw the love of money by the pastor take something that was good and godly and drive it into the ground. He had a vision for our building, and he literally used the building money to buy himself a brand new car. People who gave to him were on fixed incomes, and people gave their retirement money so that uh, the church could achieve a dream, and he was lying through his teeth. Uh, I know that some of you guys might have had negative experiences with church and money, and to the extent possible, I want you to try to suspend those suspicions you have of the church and think about why Jesus talks about money so often. Here's what Tim Keller says about this. He says, Jesus warns people far more often about the power of money than anything else, yet almost no one thinks they're affected by it. Since Jesus talks about it so much, we should begin with the working hypothesis that this could easily be a problem for me. The scripture today comes from the book of Matthew in the sixth chapter. And here's what Jesus says. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where the thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Here's the one that hits me like a punch in the stomach. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Here's what Jesus is saying in the scripture. He says the way that you and I spend money, the way that you and I think about money, the way that you and I give money away is actually a microscope peering deep down into our hearts. What we buy, how we save, how generous we are is not something that is random and disconnected from your spiritual life. It is deeply flowing from the very core of your life. It is showing you what, where your treasure actually is. It shows us what we actually depend on. Now, another reason that we often don't talk about money too often at Renaissance, if this is your first Sunday, you're like, yo, how, do, how was church? It was all right, the pastor talking about money, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like they always do. Uh, we don't talk about money often for the, the biggest reason being that we have so many people at Renaissance, and if you're new and this is you, man, this, this like literally is the greatest thing about our church is that people trust us enough to invite their friends who haven't been to church in a long time. And a lot of you guys don't necessarily know what you believe about Jesus. You don't know what you believe about Jesus being resurrected from the dead. You don't know what you believe about 
what it would mean for you to follow him. And for a lot of our energy and our time and our prayer, we're trying to make sure that we're answering the questions that people have first things first. And like, how could you get into a conversation about how you spend your money and what Jesus tells you to do about that unless you even know who Jesus is? So one of the reasons we've wanted to, to do that is, or to, to really make sure that we're digging down to the things, the, the real essentials of the faith. But I was reading something that really hit me like a ton of bricks the other day, and it comes from something called the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount was a sermon that Jesus taught on a mountain, which is why they call it Sermon on the Mount. That wasn't as powerful as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> Uh, in the beginning of the sermon, uh, I, I, I started to notice something about the crowd and how Jesus was teaching, and it really hit me. Here's what he says. It says, after coming down with them, he, Jesus, stood on a level place with a large crowd of his disciples and a great number of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and across and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and be healed of their diseases, and those tormented by unclean spirits were made well. The whole crowd was trying to touch him because power was coming out from him and healing them all. And here's a part that just really struck me. It says, then looking up at his disciples, he said, blessed are you who are poor because the kingdom of God is yours. Let me set this in a little bit. There's a crowd of thousands and thousands of people. People are trying to come to be healed by Jesus. They're trying to come close to Jesus for a, a whole host of reasons. Jesus sits down among this crowd of thousands of people and points his attention to teach his disciples a lesson. Why would Jesus do that? There were some things that Jesus wanted uh, his disciples to hear, but he spoke it in the middle of a whole crowd because he wanted everyone else to overhear it. Money and how you use your money is one of those subjects. Nothing I want to say today should, I hope, I pray to God that nothing I say today sounds as a request from me for you to give money. If you don't know who Jesus is, please don't listen to, please do not think anything I'm saying today is an attempt to get your money. What I do want you to see is how Jesus talks to those people who put their faith in him about their relationship to money. And my hope is that by you overhearing the conversation, you'll see how comprehensive is what it means to be in a relationship and to follow Jesus. That there's not one aspect of your life that will be off limits to him. And in a lot of ways, Jesus can't be Lord of your life unless he's Lord of your wallet. So Jesus tells a story of the, or he tells us the sermon of the, the Sermon on the Mount. And he's wanting a lot of people to overhear. And why is he wanting everybody to hear this because of this? The number one rival for your heart and for your attention is money. And if you and I are going to follow Jesus and put God first, then you and I need to surrender everything, even money, to him. And again, Jesus was not trying to get people's money. He was trying to get their money from, he was trying to keep them from being gotten by their money. Now, he said so much about money because he knows money and its power to have us. Now, in this series, we've highlighted how God could be first in our life and for our Today, I wanted to focus on two things that we'll see and unpack in the scripture, that in order for God to be truly first in our life, God needs to be, one, the source of your security, uh, the thing that actually makes you feel secure, and number two, the object of your devotion. Number one, the source of your security. In uh, Matthew 6, Jesus says this, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. The first thing that Jesus talks about in his temptation is 
in this uh, scripture is the temptation for you and I to store up money as if money has the power to keep bad things from happening to us. As if money truly is a dependable and reliable source of security. Back in the day, there were no Chase's or Bank of America's or uh, any, any banks. If people had resources, they would have things like precious metals, gold, silver. Uh, they would have garments. They would have grains. And they would take all of these things, and they would put them in barns and storehouses. And what Jesus is saying is these places where you put your money, these barns where you store your money, they're susceptible to be taken, either by the natural uh, occurrences of rust and bad weather or by thieves. And he's saying that your primary focus and your primary security should not be in storing up treasures here on, Evan because none, here on earth because none of these things are actually truly secure. In those days, Jesus was also teaching and thinking about this principle of where God's people actually got their security from. So Jesus was a Jewish man, and he would have been very acquainted and familiar with Jewish customs and teachings. And there was always, all throughout antiquity, all throughout the Old Testament, there was always this teaching that the way we treated our belongings and the way we either hoarded or gave away was a direct symbol of our dependence and reliance on God. In Exodus 16, uh, there's a slice of scripture where God promised to take care of his people. And it says, then the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to make it rain bread, bread from heaven for you. And this is where making it rain has come from. <laughs> like literally, this is where it came from. That's crazy. <laughs> the people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way, I will test them and see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. Uh, in the Jewish system, there was a Sabbath day, and on the seventh day, they were prohibited from working. So they were given permission to, to take twice as much on the sixth day so that they didn't have to work on the Sabbath. But every other day, here was the instruction, take just enough for that one day. And trust that God is going to provide for you tomorrow. Later, you see what happens. It says, so the Israelites did this. Some gathered a lot. Some gathered a little. When they measured it by courts, the person who gathered a lot had no surplus. And the person who gathered a little had no shortage. Each gathered as much as he needed to eat. But Moses said to them, no one is to let any of it remain until morning. But they didn't listen to Moses. Some people left part of it until morning, and it bred worms and stank. Here's what Jesus is getting at in, this, uh, in his instruction to us to not store up for ourselves. He's linking back to this concept of his followers trusting that God will provide for us, and we do not need to go out of bounds of what God prescribes to store up more than what God commands. Now, I always want to be cautious with this and to make sure nobody's hearing me say something that I'm not saying. I am not saying anything is wrong with the savings account. I'm not saying you should live on razor's edge and not have margin in your life. I am saying that a lot of us, the reason we're not as generous as we should be or the reason we live in a certain way is because we truly do trust this reservoir of money to be our functional security. So Jesus warns us, uh, and one of the biggest signs of this is that you and I are not generous. Generosity is this, showing a readiness to give more of something as money or time more than is strictly necessary or expected. 
Now, we don't get into formulas here at Renaissance and how much you should give, but the one thing that we do hope is that cultivated in the hearts of people who say they follow Jesus is generosity. It is a readiness to give of your money, trusting that God will provide for you every step of the way. In times of certainty and in times of uncertainty, that you could depend and trust God, that God will never leave you um, begging for bread, as it says in the scripture. I want to ask a couple of diagnostic questions um, to see if you are looking to money to be your security. Here's one question. Do you think you would be happier with just a little bit more? And here's the crazy thing about that. This is such a relative thing, right? I remember when I was in high school and I was a waiter, and I was like, yo, if I had 20 Gs a year, yo, I would be, I would be balling if I had 20 stacks a year. Like, I could have over $1,000 a month. Do you know what I would do with that? The more time has gone, every single amount in my head that would have been enough keeps on sliding. That scale keeps on moving. I've talked to people. Um, one of the things about Renaissance, there are some very accomplished people um, who you have, very humble also, and uh, the more you talk to different people, the more you realize, like, oh, no, there are people who really don't even have student loans left. They just, like, paid them joints off. And a lot of us, like myself, I don't have that luxury. I'm not talking about myself. Um, a lot of us think if I made as much as them, then I would really be generous. But here's what Jesus teaches in one parable. He says, if you're not faithful over a little, why would you think you'd be faithful over much? A lot of us, uh, we have this number in our head if we had just a little bit more. But here's the thing about appetites. Appetites always, always, always want more. There's only one word in the vocabulary of appetites, more. There will never be a number that you hit that you say, I finally have enough. Uh, this past Thanksgiving, you probably showed up to someone's house. You didn't have no belt on. You were ready to go crazy and just let it all hang out and eat like crazy. You wore your spandex because you were like, yo, today is a day. We're going to get it in. And you were full, right? You ate so much food. You were full. You hated yourself. And then what happened? Someone brought the, the, the peach cobbler out, and you were like, actually, I could eat a little bit more. All of us know what it feels like physically to, to think that we're full and satisfied only a couple hours later to want more. And here's what I'm, uh, I know to be true about money. A lot of us think that we will be full and satisfied and we'll never truly, uh, if we hit this number, we'll be okay and we'll, we'll feel secure, but that number's gonna keep on moving. Uh, second question, does the way you, you use your money reflect that you are living for now or for eternity? Jesus in the scripture talks about storing up treasures in heaven. And what does that even mean? Uh, spiritual treasure should be defined as everything that followers of Jesus can take with them beyond the grave, the strength of your character, the obedience to God's commands, people won for Christ, people nurtured in their faith, and it focuses particularly, particularly on the compassionate use of our material resources to meet others' physical and spiritual needs in keeping with the priorities of God's kingdom. Our bank accounts and our Amex statements and our credit card statements will tell us what our actual priorities are. Uh, Jesus tells us that where your heart is, your treasure will be there also. It's a painful exercise, but look at your statements. And wherever you've been putting that money, this is what Jesus is saying, as hard as it is to hear this, but your attention, your, your priority are in the things that you and I are spending money in. And whatever you spend money is, your attention will automatically go in that direction. Number three, the question is this, are you generous with the money that God has already given you? A lot of us, we believe that if we are really generous with our money, then 
will end up holding the short stick and that we will be left alone and that we will not have enough for our needs and that God won't truly provide for us. In a lot of ways, we believe that money will be a source of security. Now, one of the craziest things about this is that anybody who's really ever been through something in life, you know that there are some things, some seasons, some situations where money has no answer for it. I've told this story a lot about losing my late wife to cancer, and I remember uh, close to the end of her life where there were these, uh, this prescription that cost $25,000 per prescription. And bless up to the Department of Education and their wonderful uh, uh, benefits package. They had the insurance, and we had enough to uh, the, the little copay fee was only like $15. And I remember thinking how fortunate we were to be able to get these $25,000 pills that were supposed to be the miracle drug to solve this problem. And I don't have to tell you how the story ended. The pills didn't work. Now, there are some things that money can help with, for sure. There are some situations that money is very helpful for. And again, I am not after taking your money. I'm after your money taking you. But years ago, I'll never forget when Steve Jobs was diagnosed with a really aggressive cancer. And Steve Jobs, I was reading the articles about his uh, cancer care. He had a team full of doctors which analyzed his specific DNA to make sure that the specific chemotherapy he was getting was targeting the cells in the most efficient ways humanly possible. And what happened? He died. And he gets no rewards for being the richest man in the cemetery. Our money can help us out a lot. But if we're looking to it to be a source of security, it is an idol that will always overpromise and underdeliver. So it makes no sense for us to live out of bounds and not be generous with what God has given us. Again, there is nothing wrong with having money. There is something wrong when money has you. Now, what God wants for us is much deeper than what God is asking from us. And what God is asking from us is to be generous and to live a life where we are specifically and intentionally focusing our attention, if you follow Jesus, specifically and intentionally managing your resources in such a way that it reflects living within the vision of God's mission, of God's kingdom. There's a quote by Arthur Ashe where he says like this, no matter where you are, start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. The concept of following Jesus and discipleship is really, really complicated, oftentimes for no reason. Here's what it boils down to. Start by doing the next obedient thing. Whatever's right in front of you, start by doing that. If you're new to Renaissance, if you're new to Christianity, you can put your fingers in your ear for this part. I don't want you, you don't have to do any of this. If Renaissance is home, if you are a follower of Jesus, nothing would make me happier than for you to challenge yourself and to pray and to think through, am I living my life right now in a generous way? This month, uh, you'll be getting receipts from charitable organizations and from Renaissance. We'll show you what you've actually given this year. And quick side note, I never know who gives what, so don't like avoid me in the hallway if you feel like this year hasn't been your year. You know what I'm saying? If I'm looking at you right now, you're like, yo, he kept on looking in my direction. I know. <laughs> uh, I don't know who gives what because I, we have a very generous church, and I assume that every single one of you is a generous person. Uh, so don't take any of this stuff for, if I see you in the hallway, don't feel awkward about this. But I want you to go and I want you to evaluate how much you have actually given and to pray, Lord, have I truly been generous with what you have given me? 
for my wife and I, 10% uh, of our income is really generous uh, to, to church and we give to other organizations, but I, I don't want that to be a number for everyone uh, in the sense that I don't believe in a specific number that you have to give, but I do believe that we should live our life in a way that we are accountable to God for how we spend our money. We're intentional about how we save. We're not just spending through everything and living life all for ourselves, but we're really intentional about paying off our debts, saving money, uh, being generous so that we would live our life in bounds of what God is calling us to do. So start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. And here's what happens when you start to give generously in your life. Here's what you're saying over your life and over your money. You're saying this, my hope is not in riches, but in the one who richly provides. My hope, my assurance, my security is not in my money. It's in the one who provides life and, and all things. So secondly, uh, so first, in order for God to be first in our life, God needs to be the source of our security. And number two, in order for God to be first in our life, he needs to be the object of our devotion. Uh, here's what Jesus says in these verses. For, your, for where your treasure is, uh, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? Here's a verse that we can spend two months talking about. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus uses a really interesting word here of devotion, and devotion is love, loyalty, and enthusiasm. What Jesus is saying in this verse is your love, your loyalty, and your enthusiasm will be for either God or for money. And Jesus uses an even stronger word and says, and you'll actually hate the other one. And what does Jesus mean by the word hate? Now, hatred could be used in a lot of ways in the New Testament. One is like just this feeling of anger or malice. Like if I were to say, I hate Tom Brady, that would be a true statement. When Jesus is saying you'll love one and hate the other, he's not saying it in a sense of hatred or malicious feelings or an emotional response to something. He's saying it in a sense of submission. There's another scripture where Jesus talks about this same concept. He says, if you want to follow me, if you really want to follow me, here's what you have to do. You have to hate your mother, your father, your sister, your brother, even your own life. And if you hate them, if you hate all of this, then you could be my disciple. Now, a lot of people have read this scripture just at surface level and said, yo, this dude, Jesus is bugging. Like, why would he want me to hate my parents and my family? Uh, but if you look at Jesus' own life, he didn't live in a way that he hated his mother. He actually treated her so dearly all throughout her life. He loved his mother. What Jesus is saying with that word hatred in that context and in this context is not of a malicious feeling, but it's rather of submission. That if you would submit to your, the will of your parents, if you would submit to the will of your family, if you submit to your desires over my will, you can't be my disciple. So when Jesus is saying you'll love one and you'll hate the other, he's saying you will have your enthusiasm, your devotion towards one, and you will not submit to the other. So when practical financial living says this and Jesus says that, your, your submission will be to that over God. So Jesus warns us about our devotion uh, being towards money, that you and I would live in such a way that money can, that money deserves our devotion. Now, money is good, again, I think it's a, it's a good thing to use within the context that it's used. But if you were to really think about all of the things that you've spent money on, all of the things that money has done for you, 
Is it something that you can say, yes, I should be devoted to it? Devotion is a brilliant and beautiful concept. Um, the things I think that I am devoted to the most are the people that have sacrificed for me. The people who have proven me by their track record that I deserve, that they deserve my devotion. I've told this story a number of times um, about when I saw devotion firsthand, and it's probably one of the first times in my life where I saw what the concept of devotion truly meant. It came from my dad and his mother and how he treated his mother. My dad grew up pretty poor in Buffalo on the east side, and um, in his life, he didn't have a lot. Uh, he told stories about in middle school where he only would have one pair of two pairs of pants and two shirts, and his mother worked as hard as she could to make sure that he had everything that he truly needed. She literally cleaned up on her hands and knees to make sure that he had everything that she could give him. All the while, hoping and praying, dragging him to church, speaking to his life that you're going to be something one day. In her service and sacrifice for him, he was able to live a life where he would accomplish the dreams that other people would laugh at, he would one day become. And what happened when he made it? What happened when he graduated law school? Did he forget about his mother? Did he call her once a year on her birthday for the obligatory phone call? Or was he devoted to her? To the day that she breathed her last breath, he was fiercely devoted to his mother to make sure that she had everything. And here's why. The only reasonable response to a life given for you is a life that you would give devoted to them. Here's what the gospel says, that Jesus, although he was not under any obligation to do so, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The whole story of the gospel is that God has come down in the form of Jesus to give his life for you and for me. And when Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and he's praying and he's sweating blood and he's saying, Father, if, if there's any other way to, to let this pass, let it happen. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And he laid down his life for us. And here's what Jesus is calling and asking us to do. He's asking us to be devoted to the one who would not spare anything, even his own life for us. In 1 John 3 and 16, it talks about this and how the gospel compels our generosity. It says, this is how we have come to know love. He, Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. If anyone in this world has this world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need, but withholds compassion from them, how does God's love reside in them? Little children, let us not love in word or in speech but in action and in truth. Here's what Jesus is asking us to do, to consider the cross and how you and I live our lives and what we should actually be devoted to. The one who did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the one who invites us to live a little dangerously, to trust him, that he is worthy of our trust and our consideration. Now, 2,000 years ago, Jesus uh, started a ritual for his followers and it was a ritual of communion. Communion is a practice where Jesus uh, wanted his disciples to be physically reminded of a spiritual truth. This truth that Jesus would uh, want embedded in us is that he was devoted for us to the extent of laying down his life on that cross. Jesus, when he tells and gathers his disciples, he uses two words that I want us to focus on today. He says, remember me. 
Today, if you have placed your faith in Christ, I want you to come to receive communion, and I want you to do, those, to do that very simple thing. I want you to remember him. I want you to remember the love that God has for you, that he would lay down his life in Christ. Now, there will be uh, communion servers uh, at the front and in the, and in the back, and here's how, they take, here's how you take communion. Uh, you take a cracker and you dip it into the grape juice, and uh, the cracker represents Jesus' body, which was broken for you. The juice represents his blood, which was poured out for you, for me and for you. During this next song, you can come and receive communion to remember him. And I want you to make a confession and a declaration over your life that Jesus, because you were devoted to me, I'm going to be devoted to you. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for just a time we get to, to remember you, to center our lives around you. And Jesus, I pray that you would encourage us, challenge us, comfort us to live with you as a source of our security and the source of our devotion. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.